Uh, um, you know, it's getting darker earlier. Therefore, we're going to talk about Seattle. This is the Com Center. Our friend Abby is with us tonight to talk about a settlement. Uh, and you, as you know, she's from the Pacific Northwest, so we're not talking about Chopper Chaz. We are talking about an actual court settlement. We're going to go. Uh, we're going to discuss what Seattle Cares is and its impact on 911 emergency call takers. And then John is going to inexplicably create metaphors using uh, grasshoppers. All that and what it means for your weekend tonight on the Com Center. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Shootings in New York City have more than doubled this year. Welcome to Failure to Stop. Guns up and giddy up to the wolf pack. This is the Com Center. This is the number one podcast where police uh, meet society and culture as well. I'm joined by Drew Breezy. He's an old uh, veteran cop. Lots of experience. I'm John. I'm an active dispatcher tonight. We're going to talk about the cases in your community, life and death stuff, and how it all works together. Uh, we're all ready to go. I'm producing the show again tonight. So our best wishes to Josh Dadleg Henderson, who is off. Uh, taking care of himself. But if you want to call us and be a part of the show, you could do so tonight, 848-COM-911. That's 848-266-6911. Drew, it has been a little bit since I last talked to you. How are you doing? I couldn't be better. I'm not in a creative slump at all. No. Uh, I, I couldn't be uh, more uh, well uh, dispositioned, I guess you could say. Uh, I'm very happy uh, and everything. I love going, it. I, I love. I love. Everything's going fantastic. I love it when the leaves change and it gets a little. It gets a little cool outside. And football's on, and the seasonal affect disorder is in full raging force. <laughs> full bloom. And you're paralyzed, and you're like, "Why even get out of bed? <laughs> I'm just gonna come back here again tonight anyway." I'm missing. Uh, by the way, missing Jackson's uh, uh, game tonight. <clears throat> he should either be playing left field or third base. So go expose. It sounds like a terrible football team, to be honest with you, if he's playing left field. <laughs> I can't even make heads or tails of that. Yeah, uh, midfielder. Yes. Did you want to acknowledge some of the people in the chats? I got I got two shout-outs, if I'm allowed to do those at the beginning of the show. I would like oh, to do have, it now. Have at that. And, so I don't just, forget it. No, I want to give, for a, give a shout-out to Carly of Carly and Beignet. 10-4 was Carly's birthday. So our favorite dispatcher out there in the field, even though she's retired from the gold line, uh, happy birthday to her. She was born. On 10-4, it was just a match made in heaven. And also, out there in the Wolfpack, even though she's rarely here in the chats, uh, to uh, newly minted correctional officer Dana Ruff, today is her birthday on 10-5, which is a common corrections code that means the same thing as 10-4. Just kidding. That's not even true. <laughs> just wanted to give shout-outs to them. If you want a shout-out on the show, send me a DM. You can reach me at Difficult to Look at Pictures on Instagram. And you can reach Drew Breezy at uh, Big Retired Cop Guy 94 <laughs> Yeah. on instagram yeah. leave us a message read out reach with, out to with the uh, seasonal affective disorder a seasonal hey, I, I i did not know that um uh dana was going through the corrections academy I, i'm i'm very impressed i'm very happy for her she uh took her forever to get hired like she told me like last year she that she was going through an interview process and she's finally like 
that she has gotten to the point now where they've issued her a uniform. So she says, like, only six months more to go before I'm allowed to tell an inmate to do even one thing. So she's on she's on that silver road to, to a long corrections career. So I just wanted to say happy birthday to her. Uh, chatting with us, if you're not if you're not a part of the YouTube chats, and I don't know why you're not, to be honest, but if you're not part of it, uh, you're missing out on Will Cray, you're missing out on Casey Anthony's defense team, uh, who is a fellow we know by the name of David, who uh, actually funded our Thanksgiving last year. Michael Hendricks is here. He is a, uh, uh, don't ever call him an architect and don't accuse him of any, being anything but an engineer. Ben Allen is here from the uh, great uh, Northeast. Uh, he's watching the leaves change as we sit. Uh, Kyle H. Marines, which is uh, quite an odd last name, if you ask me. Meat and potatoes here. How you doing, Tater? Again, Carly and Beignet are here. We never know if it's Carly or Beignet that's doing the typing. And uh, that's what I'm seeing here. Some guy named Jen Jonathan. I see Sillamander here, Sillamander, and she's uh, she's a crowd favorite. Armory Knight and Murph, 530. Uh, Tanner's here. Listen, um, Marine's Blood is here. Uh, Murr was having an issue. Uh, sometimes what we, we do on Failure to Stop is uh, we re we pre-record something and then we release it instead of uh, instead of doing it as a live stream. It, it just does some weird things with the uh, the algorithm, which is John's favorite topic. So um, when you do that, if we ever if you ever don't find a chat, uh, th th that's not proper English, I understand. But if if you ever log on to something that's being broadcast live and you don't see the chat, just log back out, log back in. You're going to find the live chat. Uh, we we make our money on this live chat in the sense that this is where the community is. And we this also is, uh, we also yeah, make ahead. make our money entertaining and informing first responders is our mission yes. statement. I just got a text message from Eric Tanzi that was mostly emojis. Uh, <laughs> support us on YouTube. Give us a like. Hit uh, subscribe. Hit the notification bell. You're also watching us on Rumble tonight, if I'm not mistaken. If you're watching on Rumble, welcome. Yes, on a, on the actual Com Center channel on Rumble, there's a there's just a few little uh, nuanced things that we're trying out. So there's an actual. It's not on the Failure to Stop channel on Rumble. It's on the Com Center channel. Uh, and how can I not uh, acknowledge the last known president, uh, Tool fan, Brittany? Thank you. She is the Secretary of State of the Wolfpack. That's for sure. Brittany, yeah. it's good, always good to see you. Uh, try acting out in a positive way for a touch of the night and see, see what it gets you. You don't always have to act out <laughs> negatively. Uh, it's always good to see everybody. Just remember, if you're listening uh, after the fact on Spotify or iTunes, you should... Uh, Give us a five-star rating and review. Help us climb back to the top of the charts. That's kind of our goal is to help get uh, word out there as we head into the political season, what's going on with the police and the inevitable return of the defund movement in full force. And, well, of course, on this show, we're just here to talk about what dispatchers do. And uh, tonight we're going to kind of uh, talk about how it's going to be different in Seattle. But uh, tell a friend about the show. Pass it on. If you really like Failure to Stop, check us out on Patreon there, too. Not to nickel and dime you, but. There's always more failure to stop if you want to get it. Just go for it. I encourage you. You just got to find it. John John, John is a content machine. I, I am. I'm not, I, I, I'm not saying been, he's content. I'm saying he's a content machine. No. Uh, uh, Detzloff, thank you for that $2 super chat. We appreciate you. We will keep fighting. Every time I think about not fighting anymore, I always think about the $2 you gave me to keep fighting. <laughs> right. And then uh, I keep fighting. Gets me so. out of bed. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, Carly saying, did my background change again? Looks good. No, it has been that way for about six months, Carly. So uh, <laughs> thank you for thank you for noticing. Uh, uh, speak, speaking of backgrounds, 
we we were we're gonna bring a friend in. Yeah, bring her up. I miss Abby. She she's been ignoring me for quite some time. I want her back on the show. Abby, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? Abby, I, I'm doing great. Abby is uh, she is the purveyor of a podcast known of known as On Being a Police Officer. I've been a guest on the show. John's been a guest on the show where he got to show uh, off some of that uh, intelligence quotient that he actually possesses. Eric Tanzi's been on it. Uh, a few of us have have made the rounds on on being police officer, but it's such a more robust podcast than just the failure to stop people. And in fact. Uh, I made reference to this the other day. You should listen to 14-year-old Tyler and his episode. For, Tyler wants to be a police officer, so you know she gave him a good uh, a good interview, one, and then she followed up with the officer he did a ride-along with. It was amazing. Uh, so please download that podcast. Uh, give it a listen. It's it's uh, very um, – it, I, I can never stress enough the importance of the civilian part of our – existence because it does take a community you know to to make sure that we're doing the things that we should be doing and and that's what she does she's asking questions and uh, acting on behalf of herself but on behalf of the community too also so thank you for being here abby what's what's going on uh what's good up in your part of the world (laughs) well i should add that yesterday was tyler's birthday so he's now 15 and his i messaged him and his first response was he can't wait to turn 16 so he can do another ride along so (laughs) this is a kid that really wants to be in law enforcement and really supports law enforcement so if it's a very um charming and touching episode but it is is. i I was very you up for sure yeah it uh, yeah it it will There was a little twist at the end I was kind of surprised by. Hey, Abby, Tanner has a question for you. He wants to know if you touch on international policing in your podcast. Now, I know that you have. Did you want to mention that episode as well for Tanner? Sure. I interviewed a, what would he be, a constable? Yes, a constable from New Zealand who started out in the U.K., so, you know, interesting story there. In U.K., officers cannot have guns cannot carry guns. And then in New Zealand, they are semi-armed. So I asked him, if you're in the UK and someone pulls a gun on you and you're a police officer, what do you do? And he said, in the UK? I said, yes. He said, you run. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and you duck. It, yeah, yeah. He said, and so, but the sad story in New Zealand is that there was a constable, the semi-armed means they can have a gun in their car, locked in a box, unloaded. So if you need this gun, you have to go back to your car, unlock you, the box, and if, load the gun. If you really need it, and you have five extra minutes in this life or death emergency. Right. <laughs> Makes sense. So, Good job. There was a constable killed. You know, those are countable seconds. Yeah. And unfortunately, oddly enough, the country, I mean, I'm no expert, but the country supports this. Um, so... John, can you can you imagine the montage of um, the police and the bad guy like fumbling for their keys, both trying to get to their guns quickly? I imagine that's how it is down there. They've got like you know a special thing on the ends. It's one of those belt clips that you have like uh, that's on the, on your belt loop, and they're each yeah. like looking for it. It's on and a of chain, course, the yeah. bad guy's got a lot of guns. You know these ghost guns or whatever. He's lucky he even has keys for those. <laughs> so he's fumbling trying to find that and. But yeah, that it's a that it's an old fashioned Western draw at the point who's that you know here we used to have the law of the fastest gun 
in New Zealand, it's the law of the fastest key, obviously. So they're a little sure. bit more civilized down there. Not surprised they had Lord of the Rings. Is that uh, <laughs> is that where Oscar Pistorius was, or was that he was Australia? Australia. Yeah, Australia. Okay. All right. Is that the guy with the fake legs? I'm sorry. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. So. Okay. Good. He killed his girlfriend. Yeah, he wasn't on. He was not unarmed, John. It's a. <laughs> That you. Was a, you took away my joke with a better one, which is why we're a good team. But I was going to say, you know, just how disgusting it is and how woke it is that we just how quickly we forget all of his Olympic records. You know, it's just. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he flat out killed his girlfriend. So mm-hmm. she should have run away from him. Was he faster because of those springy things, though? Yeah, was I think, it, I, yeah. He didn't. He wasn't wearing them at the time. No, I think that might be an issue too. But if I, mean, I remember right, he had that locked in a safe or something like that. I, I remember the, watching part of that trial. Yeah. Can we do that tonight instead of this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. That could that'd be a good Halloween episode. Yeah. <laughs> Although we've we got two in the works. One so, yeah. one's being denied, but no. see I was a sucker. I bought his story, you know. I what, what the intruder? Yeah. I mean, I think you could wake up in the dark and I don't know. Yeah. I'm a sucker. I believe the Menendez brothers. So, oh boy. Well, well, no. I mean, that's coming back around. That. That's mm-hmm. coming back around. Like, I, I, this is this is akin to like everybody hated George W. Bush, but now everybody all of a sudden <laughs> loves George W. Bush. Uh, but uh, you know, and, and most of us who liked him back then are maybe not fans of them now. Uh, but, um, you know, I think it's akin to all that, but, uh, so John, don't we have uh, a story out of, uh, Abby's neck of the woods? Yeah. And just to be clear, John, I'm not from here. I live here. No, I see. I know that you're, I know that you're from New York. I don't think I've ever had a conversation where you you didn't remind me. I'm from Pennsylvania, but from I guess Pennsylvania. I from lived in you, you, you actually are, are quite the world traveler because I because you mentioned that you went to co- uh, college in uh, in Ohio and then you lived in New York and then uh, L.A. About, uh, and then L.A. and the West Coast. You were, there, you were there to instigate or excuse me, survive the riots <laughs> in, the, in L.A. and then 9/11 and then, and then you 9/11. I mean, you were there for 9/11. You didn't. Oh. <laughs> Anyway, uh, folks, I have a whole map of where Abby goes and where crimes occur. <laughs> profiling. And uh, where there's escapees. And uh, later, later, when someone says, you know, I was a sucker. I believed Abby Ellsworth. I'd be like, I didn't. I had my crazy map the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Drew and I grew up near each other. Drew is Niagara Falls, which is a yep. hip, stop, hop, skip, and a jump from Erie. Sure, it's two hours, probably two hours. When I was a kid, I was a bat boy for a minor league baseball team in Niagara Falls, and we used to play the Erie Cardinals all the time. All we right. We used to do the, the bus ride there, play the game, and the bus ride home. So, I mean, uh, you know, it was definitely within bus distance, and I can still smell the fumes of uh, the uh, the diesel from the, uh, <laughs> from the bus. It brings back bad memories. I used to play center field for the Jamestown Ghosts. Anyway, <laughs> uh, deep reference. My favorite. Uh, so it's Seattle night. So okay. go, go Mariners, go Mario, whatever it is that we're. Go Kraken. Go, go all of that. Anyway, we got a case out of, uh, this is just our news brief. This is not our main story. But uh, we had a, a case out of Seattle where they're settling uh, with a family. The city is uh, for after a, a wrongful death uh, civil case. 
in which uh, someone dialed 911, a young boy, 13-year-old boy, dialed 911. An ambulance was needed for his father. And paramedics were ready, and they arrived on scene, but they did not go inside at the direction of a dispatcher. And I'm going to go ahead and play a brief media clip here, and we'll discuss it and uh, some of the reasons why that occurred, why it went okay, why it went wrong and maybe some politics behind it, and then uh, we'll turn it over to the main case. But I'll bring on a news clip here. Uh, conscious? I don't know. I think, he, yeah, he's conscious, but he's not okay. I think he's having a heart attack or something. Hurry. That's the voice of a 13-year-old pleading for help for his father, William Urich, who was inside a Seattle apartment. About six minutes go by, according to attorney Mark Lindquist. What the son didn't know is that the medics were already there, but they weren't going in because they didn't have a police escort. That's because the address had been flagged as dangerous, but Lindquist says that was a mistake. Ms. Jurek had never been hostile first responders. A previous tenant had been. The list had not been updated. About 14 minutes after his initial call, the 13-year-old tries again. And this is a heart-wrenching 911 call. There's already people coming over, but he's, I can't, he's barely breathing, and he wasn't like this before. Okay. He's really worried. Okay, I do have people on the way. After his son made that second call, the medics decided they couldn't wait any longer for an escort, and they broke protocol and went in anyway. Unfortunately, it was too late. The family filed a lawsuit claiming the city was negligent. The city was still relying on police escorts when it was pretty well known that those police escorts were almost always delayed. According to Lindquist, the delays were tied to an understaffed police department, and he says that was not the only problem. They had an inaccurate, out-of-date list. And when you keep a list that people's lives depend upon, it has to be correct. Now, before settling the lawsuit, the city made changes. Caution notes now need to be verified after first responders are called in and more checks are in place to make sure the police assistance is needed. Live tonight in Seattle, Natalie Swaby, King 5 News. Abby, since uh, you're a resident of Seattle, I'm going to uh, make a, an uncouth decision to put you on the spot. What's the first thing you think about hearing, uh, you know, one of your... Uh, and I guess I don't know if you live in Seattle, but you're in the area. And uh, so, you know, what do you think about uh, some, so a, a father of kids waiting for a paramedic who's outside to come inside to save his life? Well, I, I remember when this happened, right? We're the reporting on the lawsuit, the settlement of the lawsuit. Uh, my first thought was, people, well, the one thing I want to put in perspective is that people don't understand why fire can't go in when it's a situation that requires law enforcement to go in. I'm not making, you know, I am, this is a tragic story, but the one thing I just need, I think people make these leaps because they don't know why they don't know why fire is there. Why can't, and, and as she said in the piece, we're so understaffed, Seattle PD is so understaffed from defunding, they, it's not like they don't want to get there. So, you know, um, you can you can enlighten people on why people, you know, fire can't go in. But I'll relate it to another thing that happened here, which was the chop during the riots when 
you know, if you remember, they shut down several blocks of Seattle and they even gave up the East Precinct. And by then, I mean, the protesters took over the these couple of blocks. There was a guy who was shot in the chop and they would not allow the police in. And so fire couldn't come in. And so they blamed the police. <laughs> right. They're the, the fire fire is sitting right there. So, you, you know. My first reaction is to make sure people understand the the why of it. One one thing that's bothering me, and Drew, and then I'll get your take as well, because obviously you're an admin on this. You have a, a lot to add. Well, the thing that mainly bothers me is a 911 dispatcher. And uh, you're, Abby, I think you're correct on all points. NBC News, KUOW, Fox News, The Seattle Times, various threads and Reddit, Twitter, uh, all these other outlets, they're referring to what happened uh, and I'll throw in KESQ as well. They're saying he was added to a blacklist. Blacklist right. is basically, you know, uh, it's right. a, has a very negative connotation of people who don't have the same level of uh, of rights or um, people that are, you know, they're somehow on the outs or they're persona non grata or something. I, I, hate, I hate and resent very much that they're referring to it as a blacklist because we in the comm center do not refer to this as a blacklist. True. Right. Um, flag records are very common in most uh, major cities and probably just about every uh, communications center uh, across the U.S. Because of what we've spoken about since minute one on this show, like you have, quote, frequent flyers. You also have uh, very violent people or people with uh, severe alcohol problems or e even people that have seizures that are violent when they come out of their seizures. And it's it's. Uh, you, you know, the, the attorney who I don't disagree with, by the way, I mean, this is a tragic case, but, you know, the attorney rightly says, look, <laughs> they need to be updating these lists. It, but it's easier said than done because the lists need to exist because um, you don't want to send the fire personnel or the rescue personnel in cold when when the police, you know, the department or law enforcement understands or knows people at that address are are traditionally violent or you know it's a drug den which is not too far uncommon anymore but on the other side of it like when you get a low income area transient area and, and i don't know if that's the case where this was uh, i could tell you we have several where i used to work uh, people move out of apartments All on the, the daily yeah. I mean, like, you know, some in some places are halfway houses and some places are, you know, for uh, for whatever reason, people are constantly moving uh, in transient areas like that. So it's it is very difficult to keep up on a list when when you're flagging an address as opposed to flagging the person at the address. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and I, I was talking to Abby about this a long, you know, earlier um it was nightmarish during COVID because uh, where I worked, they started flagging records because so much was not known or yeah. there wasn't enough that was known about COVID. So they would flag addresses for, you know, yep. exercise universal health precautions or don't enter this home if, mm -hmm. you know, if you're dispatched there or whatever. And I, I guarantee those records still exist right now. They do. Yes. And and, and so you don't know why you like you, you like, it could be because there's somebody with uh, HIV in there. It could be that there's somebody with um, uh, tuberculosis or something, or it could be somebody that 
had a high temperature for and just returned from a trip to New York within three days. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they create this flag record because and, and because of HIPAA laws, the problematic part of this is you can't put in there what is going on. So you're just you're just going to put in there, hey, you know, exercise universal health precautions. That's like the the catch all term. So um, this is kind of what happened in this situation is what I'm gathering. They that whoever lived there before was an asshole. And th this guy moved in and he had a legitimate medical emergency and a 13 year old kid who's going to live with this trauma for the rest of his life because he tried to save his dad. And there are emergency people just on the other side of the door there to do so. But they couldn't go in because it would have broke protocol. They, they, uh, by the way, eventually ended up just breaking protocol and going in. Uh, and you know, but obviously it was futile because he was already, you know, too far gone. But sad, sad story. And it, it's just like, what is the fix for that? The, 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 it's nearly impossible to fix that. You, on one hand, have to warn the the first responders that there's activity at that apartment, and then on the other hand people move so how do you keep that database updated without being too big brotherish you, so. you you can't yeah and uh and it's not just uh it's not just medical things we have location notes at my agency for people who are sovereign citizens who have expressed terroristic yeah. threats before that they're going to harm people some of these people like it's not even their expression or their viewpoint or their worldview it's that the last time we sent ems there they beat up our ambulance crew you yeah. know so sometimes it's based off of things like that of course, Drew makes a good point about your location note being tied to an address in an apartment complex, your tenants turnover. How it might be better done is associated with a name card. Now, here's a weird situation for a 911 dispatcher. So your, your dad, uh, he's, is he conscious, alert, and breathing? What's his name and date of birth? <laughs> there you go. You know, like that's a weird question for a dispatcher because because of HIPAA, we for medical calls, we typically don't ever want to know the name of the patient just because we mm. don't even want, we don't even want to taint the water supply to say, well, what information got out? I'm like, well, the I don't even I never even knew. And some callers are very quick to give that. They'll say, yeah, my wife fell down. I'm like, okay, sir, what's your name? And he goes, my wife's name is Bertha. And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> thanks. I don't need to know your wife's name because she fell, you know? So some callers are very quick to, to do that. But sometimes we have uh, notes that have been very, very helpful. Just as, a, uh, just as a quick counterpoint, and then we'll put it to bed. But I had a call recently where a guy called up and he sounded very strange to me. Is it just an unusual call? And he said he wanted to talk to the bomb squad, which raised all kinds of red flags in my brain. And so uh, I start doing some checking. I can't really decipher what he's about, but it's upsetting because we had actually had a bomb threat earlier that day. So I'm kind of on edge about this call. Well, I do some checking and I'm able to figure out checking through his, his phone and his address. And I just gather all of my information that I normally have in the dispatch center. And I realize this guy is, an, is a, a, a guy who has autism. And sometimes he expresses his anxiety by calling 911 about it. And I, mm. I think he probably saw something in the news or social media about this bomb threat. And so he wanted to talk to the bomb squad about it because he was feeling nervous. Well, my location notes or my notes that I have in, in my in my computer say sometimes when he gets upset, you know, nothing's wrong, but you can call his mother and his mother lives with him. So I called his mom and she says, oh, yeah, he's fine. He's good. Thank you for checking on us. And I was able to close out a case that could have gone the other way. And I didn't even have to assign a police officer. It was beautiful. So just so you know. These things do work and they work properly to save lives and to preserve police officers' time and, and all kinds of things. They so work more often money. than they don't. Yeah. Yeah. They so, John, when, when a 911 call comes out like this, the dispatcher is the first person to see that it's been flagged. And you have to convey that to both fire and police. 
Well, the 911 call taker wouldn't, the dispatch would. And, and in this case, it's a big city. The dispatcher no, may not be. No, sometimes fire. the 911 call taker does it. And, and it's, okay. you know, go ahead, John, answer it. I, I mean, it's something, it's yet one more step they have to sift through. I know that uh, you you like uh, separating those because of the you, where you live and where Drew lives, but I do both. So if I take yes, an one yeah. call, it's just yep. gonna be me. Uh, my you know, I'll type in an address. This is something else we have in my area where we have a, a woman who's a, in a prolonged domestic situation with her husband, and she dials nine one one and complains of medical emergencies because she wants to talk to the police about what's going on with her husband. So she talk, she'll call and say, you know, that I've I've got terrible back pain and I'm having trouble breathing. So someone will get there. And talk to her about that. So we want a police officer to go there first to make sure, first of all, that there's not any kind of danger. I will tell them like, hey, uh, just so you know, there's location notes on this. I don't typically put that over the air because that's private information. And like, you know, there's and I'll type it in the screen, whatever's already associated with the case. A lot of the officers will know this. Like Drew said, right off the bat, frequent flyers. We know these people. We talk to them a lot. And uh, so then when I'm paging out fire and ambulance, I say like, I'll say either stage at the station and prepare to deploy. I'll say stage nearby. Sometimes I'll even pick out a staging point if it's just convenient for me to do that. I'm like, go to the go to the gas station that's on the corner and, and wait there. Wait for the police to give you the, the clearance to approach. That's very normal. And like I said, this process normally works fine. But how do you clean up that list when people are moving? About the only thing you could do is send the police every time. And then if something has changed there or whatever, then you call them afterwards and say like, hey, do you want this location note to continue? That's about all you can do because you can't track people. You know, like Drew said, it's too big brother. Right. Uh, speaking of uh, the Pacific Northwest, there's a, there's a city there, a pretty large municipality known as Seattle. Uh, Abby made mention of it a minute ago. Chop and Chaz were, uh, you, you know, after the George Floyd situation, there were uh, lots of protests. There's lots of defunding of the police. There's uh you know, between Portland and Seattle, there's just um, there's uh, quite a bit of uh, anti-police sentiment, uh, sentiment, not sediment. Uh, well, maybe sediment, but uh, but um, th th that also caused the need for uh, to look at the way they are policing, and um, you know, this often gets officers, uh, usually the younger officers, up in arms. Because that's the way we've always done it. And um, I, I am all for something that's evidence-based. I, I think I have a track record on the show or, or on other shows on this channel where, it, look, if, if, it's, if it's new and innovative and it's out, outside the box and it, it improves our efficiency or our efficacy or it, it improves our ability to gain trust in the community, I'm all for it. Um, as long as it doesn't put a strain on the safety of the officers or a strain on the uh, safety of the citizens, because that's the most, you know, those are the two most important assets. So we're going to go through what uh, CARE is, C-A-R-E. Um, th this is from the uh, Seattle channel on YouTube. It's, uh, it's a press conference that was held by the Seattle mayor. His name is Bruce Harrell. And um, I'm going to, uh, I, I edited their video just so you'll know but we're going to add commentary to it so you know i just i don't want to get in any trouble for using their video but uh it, it it's it's a very interesting thing it 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 um it it impacts 911 and emergency call takers a lot more than other people think so we're just going to kind of run through this and abby's going to uh kind of interview us on this deal 
The CARE Department, uh, which stands for the Community Assisted Response and Engagement Department, and I'll refer to it as a CARE Department, will be a true third public safety department for Seattle. I'm very honored to be here with Chief Scoggins and Chief Diaz uh, as the two primary public safety departments. But this vision um, that we are talking about in this third department is, I know, a vision shared by the City Council and the community. That's why this work is so important. Working with our police and fire departments, the care department will deliver on Seattle's long-standing need for a public safety system with a diverse emergency response option designed to meet community needs. And at the end of the day, we want our city and everyone here to know that we care. So to do this, I am proposing, as you will see, a 30% increase in CARES budget in 2024. Next week, my budget proposal will include $26.5 million for the CARE Department as it expands responsibilities from its current, current functions as the CSCC, the Community Safety and Communication Center. Okay, so just, you know, everybody gets up in arms uh, uh, when, when you hear community engagement. A lot of people get up in arms when they here, um, okay, they're going to create a whole new arm of public safety. But you, you, if you talk to the same people, mainly street cops, they will tell you the same thing. They, they, I mean, they will tell you, God, why do we have to go to this barking dog call? Why, mm. why do we have to, like, they, they will constantly complain about every call that they have to go to. They'll figure out a way to make it something they shouldn't have to go to. And a majority of them, it's true. We shouldn't have to be going to the uh, to a lot of these things, which is why I was making a point on a previous show about independence. You know, like when you when you talk about getting a community that's dependent, if they're having a dispute with their neighbors, they no longer just have a dispute with their neighbors. They pick one of them picks up the phone and, and dials nine one one, and somebody has to respond to that. But if if we teach them interdependence to depend on the community itself or independence for them to think independently and just handle their own issues and call us basically to solve the, the homicide at the end or whatever uh, in the extreme example, then I think we're making more headway in being able to free our officers up to respond to actual like acute emergencies, to respond to calls just like we saw in the beginning of this thing where the firefighters and, and rescue personnel had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And it was known. It was known that they were going to stand around and wait until the cops got there and there were no cops available. So this, as has been tried in, in a few other cities, just becomes another, quote, department. If you, ha if you have a department of public safety, everyone just assumes, you know, falling under a city manager or a deputy mayor or something, that there's a fire department. And there is a police department and never the two shall, you know, intertwine and blah, blah, blah. When in actuality, in larger cities in the country, in the counties across America, there's an emergency management arm. There's, uh, you know, everybody has a very specific function. There's a, a law enforcement function. There's a school and educational function. There's a fire uh, and rescue function. So we're all compartmentalized anyway, and we all have specialized training. What this is, is, you know, people always rely quick, uh, you know, are quick to say, well, you know, so they're just going to send social workers these calls because we're going to end up going these calls anyway because they're going to shoot the social workers. It's not that. This is just a, this is a completely different arm. 
and uh, we're going to hear how they execute that a little bit more in detail in here. I, I just wanted to explain a little bit up front what we're talking about. Guys, do you have anything to add? This investment will allow us to hire 13 additional full-time staff and make much-needed technology upgrades for this kind of work and support enhanced violence prevention and intervention efforts. So it sounds like a bunch of doublespeak, but he's saying that they're going to be able to hire 13 more. So it's not just 13 more social workers or 13 more. Um, uh, it's 13 more people to respond to low-priority calls. And in that 13, they are hiring emergency call takers to determine and vet whether this is a priority one, priority two that needs law enforcement or fire rescue, or if it's a lower priority, three or four, that this other arm that they've created, like the cleanup crew, so to speak, can can respond to. We will align our existing... By the way, uh, he mentioned the uh, budgetary, uh, what he was going to allocate in the budget, and everybody talks about reimagining police or defunding police. He also called for a, a, a decent-sized increase in the police budget as well. So this is not a defund or a reimagine. He, he's, he's being fair about it. Community-focused and non-public safety investments and programs into three divisions. The first division is our emergency call takers and dispatchers, and I'm actually going to uh, after this uh, presser, I'll go, go and look at some of our fine employees there. Number two, our behavioral health responders. And number three, the third uh, division, if you will, will be the community violence intervention specialists. Okay, so that's where people always get the hang up because what that is is more than likely social work. So mm. that's th that's people who intervene on on uh, in um, social issues like they get to root causes of domestic violence and you know they're able to maybe head some of that domestic violence off of the past it's not a perfect system uh, and uh, but but w what is because the way we handle domestic violence now is we respond after the fact after somebody's been abused if she can get to the phone or he can get to the phone we go there we make an arrest rarely do they get fully imprisoned they you know most of the time they get prosecuted but the 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 uh the abused person doesn't want to prosecute it's the state that ends up doing it and then the person just gets some kind of anger management class and then it's all over for them to repeat the cycle all over again if the root cause of this though is like alcoholism or if the root cause of this is drug abuse or or it's just an anger management issue wouldn't you rather early intervention had this off at the pass so that you'd never have to respond in the first place. Abby, did you have something? I, I, you surprised me because <laughs> I, I, uh, I didn't think that was the tack you were going to take. Um, I, I'm confused by, you know, first of all, I don't know how long it takes to assess the priority of a call. It seems to me that this makes this really complicated. I don't know. We have a we have a dispatcher on the show who can tell us, but it seems. And then, how do you know that a low risk call, like they said in this article, person down or welfare check, isn't going to escalate? You don't. I mean, how many? You don't. You don't. So then but you've got this. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go. Well, you've got this poor person now out there with no way to defend him or herself. Yes, I, I think they're two man units or two person units. Going with, a, but not going with law enforcement. 
you're correct. Um, and, and this does, this is where John's expertise comes in and I'm sorry for talking over you, John, but this is what, this is where the intensive training for the 911 call taker comes in. And it's, it's not, it's beyond a, it's not necessarily a gamble if they're asking the right questions. So if they're asking, there's, as you'll see later on in the press conference, like spoiler alert, um, Amy uh, Smith, I think her name is, is the is the chief of this, and and she she puts it succinctly. We've been doing this since like 2012, so in some form, it just hasn't been called what it's been called. There have been people, and I can tell you from personal experience too. My wife used to run; um, she was the uh, law enforcement like manager of a bunch of uh, child protective investigators, and. They're civilians. They don't have guns. They they wear shirts with uh, with marking of of the agency on it. This was before it was disbanded, by the way. But they wear shirt, shirts with the marking of the agency on it. They drive a car that looks like a detective's car, and they go out and they they're dealing with child abuse cases. Therefore, the most abusive and people with the most to lose if they give the wrong answer, and th- they're doing just fine. You know what I mean? Like they're going in and they're they're doing an, an interview and you just you hope and pray that nothing happens. But over the, the span of eight or 10 years, we only had a handful of incidents where there was a necessary uh, police intervention and they even created an alert system for that. So, you know, like if you hit the if you hit the panic button, you'll get the cops, you know, kind of thing. So in a sense, they've been doing this for a while to, to take care of that part, Abby. The, the vetting part is a little bit different. John, you're on mute. You made... <laughs> Rookie mistake. Uh, I think what she was talking about earlier was, uh, you know, how do you identify the severity of calls, particularly since people that call us tend not to tell the truth or they tend to downplay things or whatever. I, I don't know. I think you're, you're, you're walking into a trap, but similarly, I mean, you're already in that situation every time you take a call anyway. Uh, I guess for me, it's it's hard to know because there's if it works out properly, then you're taking a lot of undue burden off of police officers. We always talk about how there's this gap uh, where we have mental health needs and we have you know law enforcement needs and police officers don't like getting involved in mental health stuff because it's not illegal to be against the law and they're there to enforce the law. So it seems like they're filling that gap. You just don't know, know how it's going to go when they get on scene. You hope that they have the training and they have everything that they need to do to take care of themselves. On the other hand, how does a community look at somebody who's responding from a public safety department who doesn't have the authority that a police officer has? And maybe they just call in police officers when they need that authority. I mean, uh, we have similar things here. We have a mobile crisis team. I've seen police officers responding uh, with other people. Um, so, and, and there's even agencies that have community response officers that handle like low priority police calls that aren't police officers. They'll go and take a report of a collision, you know, but there's no gun involved. So maybe there's a way for them to, to make that work. But, uh, again, you know, training these guys properly, giving them the discretion they need, having a protocol for that's going to protect them from liability. But I mean, it's a crapshoot as to whether or not that will work. Um, should we continue on with the. Yes, so I'm going to put it back on the stage. Or you got it. We're doing Go ahead. some great work out there with some of the organizations, but all this will fall under the umbrella of the CARE Department. So this will provide our city with a new crisis response alternative to nonviolent, non-medical emergency calls, better ho- helping to address the underlying health issues 
and better helping our neighbors in the moment of need, often in the moment of crisis. Today I can share that Seattle's dual dispatch pilot will launch in October to send care responders to appropriate low-risk priority three and four calls in concert with our police officers. And I'm proudly standing with our care response team members in, in behind me. Uh, Amy has led outstanding work to launch uh, the dual dispatch pilot and brings a host of relevant skills still working with community and developing thoughtful and data-driven solutions. Now these leaders will bring culturally competent, evidence-based solutions to support a safer Seattle. So I also want to share that our 911 center is on track to be fully staffed by the end of this year. So through improved recruitment and hiring and training processes, the 911 center has hired over 45 new employees in 2023, addressing a critical need and function in Seattle's emergency response system to ensure calls are answered in a timely, efficient, and effective manner. And if anyone has even watched TV to see this kind of work, if anyone's visited our 911 dispatch, this is really critical work and important work, and I can't see enough about the employees that do this day in and day out. We're so thankful for the work of our 911 call takers and dispatchers, first responders who aren't always in the limelight, but they work tirelessly every day to keep Seattle residents safe. They handle approximately 900,000 calls per year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Um, I want to acknowledge Chief Scoggins and Chief Diaz who have truly been partners and collaborators from the first moment. Many of their colleagues also have been supportive every step of the way to get us to this moment, and I acknowledge that, and I'm grateful. Uh, I have a nonprofit background, and so when I showed up in the public sector, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I wasn't sure if, um, you know, there are some stereotypes if I was going to be met with conflict and um, resistance to change and maybe some intractable silos. and. Um, in reality, now, after hundreds of conversations across a lot of different departments, lots of different stakeholders, uh, community members, thought leaders, academics, lots of first responders, I think I'm standing here before you, the most optimistic person in Seattle. We seem to understand and be comfortable that we tried things that we thought would work and they didn't work. That we need to be rigorously evidence-based in our design thoughtful and communicative as we move forward. I spent a good time of my, um, a good part of my time in 911 and then in neighborhoods. So I just want, he's going to You mentioned help. a similar program in other cities. Is there any data to show how well it's worked in other cities? Um, yeah. And also, can you give examples of what kind of calls they'll be responding to? Yes, so we are looking at the first year, second year, third year evaluations for programs, especially for Albuquerque right now and Durham. Durham just wrapped up one year. Albuquerque just went 24-7 with their response team. They have almost 150 of these folks now, and both are rigorously evaluated. We're going to respond to priority three and four call types. Um, my understanding is that it's really person down where we need a lot of support that's why we're we're spending a lot of time on those calls um, welfare check is managed quite well right now um, by fire and by police and so we'll fill in there as we need to one of the key metrics in my mind in the first year is do officers feel better do they feel supported is this useful and so i think it'll be downstream a little bit more we'll understand more about what the community is feeling but initially i want to know that our other first responders think it's useful
So priority three calls for us are typically calls that have already uh, happened and there is some, sometimes no suspect information. So a theft, a car prowl, uh, um, an incident like a trespass but the person's gone. Uh, so things that have already happened, uh, typically we call them paper calls that are something that an officer will, might write documentation of it. But we also have other calls for service uh, that are a little bit less uh, um, focused on actual criminal conduct. So as, uh, as Chief Hill uh, mentioned, you have a person down call where the person is not committing a crime, could be highly intoxicated, you might end up needing medical assistance, might need other uh, resources or services, but that is sometimes not, we end up having to go to it, um, but it sometimes calls that could actually be better, better handled by somebody else. Okay, I, I think that's fairly important to discuss. Uh, th this is where it gets a little sticky for some of the the citizens that are t paying taxes to have a police service. And um, I get that. I understand that. I also understand this, though. We run in ratios. Everything is everything is numbers, right? So the, the crime rate is the report card. And if you like say, you know, the national average is 3.1 officers per 100,000 people. I, I don't know that it's 3.1. I think it's in that neighborhood. We, in where I worked, were working with like 1.67 per 100,000. So you just don't have the personnel to support this dependence that people have. Now, what he says, when he says things like, crimes after the fact, it, it makes people very nervous that you're not going to see a police officer. Many progressive agencies across the U.S., and in, including my old agency, have gone to an online reporting system. A, a lot of calls that used to be, like if, if you got your bike stolen and it was under a certain amount of money and it was just stolen, uh, uh, like uh, uh, you left it outside of a convenience store, there's no suspect, there's no video, there's no nothing, that's going to tie up a police officer for a good hour, maybe an hour and a half or whatever to write the report and all that. If you can call that in over a phone, it's going to take 15 or 20 minutes. And, and there's a community service officer that's sitting there writing the same report the officer would write. And on the back end, it's either going to get investigated if leads are developed or it's not. And, and that's the same thing that would happen. So I, I think society is definitely used to Cadillac service from law enforcement. But at the same time, they don't want law enforcement in their business and they don't want uh, and, and they want uh, they, they only want law enforcement when they call them. And even when they call them, they don't want them. So it's better to free up the resource to be able to respond to emergencies than to be responding to a call that doesn't require a police officer like a barking dog, uh, a trespasser that's already left. Um, you know, people people do feel uneasy that this stuff took place, but there's nothing in reality a law enforcement officer is going to be able to do. Abby? Well, you just made me think of something. We just had two car prowls on the street where I live, which is a very quiet neighborhood, dead end. And I'll tell you, I wanted the cops there. Yeah. I mean, the guy was gone. We, we saw him on our security camera. By the time the police got there, he was gone. But I, I was scared. Yeah, and sure. I don't want a civilian showing up for this. I'm not disagreeing with you. I would never, but you know, I understand <laughs> freeing <allowed>. up <laughs> resources, but uh, 
I, I understand that the car prowl is a little bit different, and especially if you have video evidence, because it's uh, th- there's something to follow up on. That's something that a law enforcement officer should handle, okay. uh, should be present for, and yeah, for your peace of mind. And I, I don't know if there's anything written anywhere, but uh, John will tell you, like if you demand a police officer, you're going to get a police officer. I mean. Well, let's let's do welfare check, for example, again, just today, the woman that lives up the hill, um, not mentally well, the police were there doing a welfare check, I assume. So can a civilian involuntarily commit her? I don't think so. Law enforcement can, right? If she needs an invol. So, uh, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure licensed mental health. I, I'm sure that. Uh, MHP. Does. Okay. Yeah. John, okay. where do you stand on all this? Again, it's it's just really hard to know. Uh, Carly, who's also a dispatcher, made a good point in the in the chat. She was saying, you know, now that people know, particularly that they're hearing that their call might be priority three or four, which sounds very low to them, they might exaggerate details of a call to get police there in a hurry. That's, That's something we already see, where people will say, so and so has a gun. So and so has a knife. That's true. There's a the the baby has a pit bull. I mean, there's always something like that that exaggerates the situation to make it worse. Now you're encouraging people now that especially if they're your frequent flyers, and I mean this in the sense of not necessarily people with mental health issues, but even criminal issues, if they're constantly aware that this non-police officer shows up and they don't want to deal with that yeah. because they they know it's just a buffer system for dealing with them. And let's face it, people want that want they want to talk to the cops. They're going to throw in some kind of keyword or buzzword that's going to make it happen. Now, we already got that going on. So can you say it's really a problem when we already have it? I don't know. Uh, I, I think like Adam Carolla used to use that example all the time. He, he would say he would say that he would do it. Like, I, I think he had a computer stolen one time or his wife did. And the officers weren't going to respond. I mean, th- nobody was going to show up. There was nothing that anybody could do. Like she left it out and there's no surveillance. There's no nothing. So, you know, his suggestion was, okay, we'll call him and tell him that, you know, the guy walked up with a gun and took it. Okay. That's all well and good until, you know, you got five officers who are responding to a call that one officer should handle. And two of the officers run into each other uh, and kill one of them uh, because they're trying to get to a man with a gun call as opposed to just some stupid, you know, I left my laptop and I'm, I'm too dumb to lock my car door. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's just um, in, in like you do have the right to unlock your car door or keep your, your car door unlocked. You also have to suffer the consequences when somebody walks by and takes that opportunity to, to unlock it. You know what I mean? So, it, it, there is a give and take in this whole thing. And, and I do see both sides most definitely because citizens are paying taxes and they, they, they want what they want, but the problem is there's not enough to go around. There's just not enough, you know, uh, and you know, if you wanted to get way far down in the rabbit hole, um, you want to lower police shootings. Why don't you lower police interactions? And, mm-hmm. and this is one way of doing it or, um, lower the, the stress level or the, um, uh, I don't know exactly how I'm trying to word it, but, um, lower the, uh, I, I don't know, the, just the constraints of a daily officer's schedule so that they're not at a nine when they, when they pull a car over so that they have more, uh, hard drive space in their skull to, to think things through and not escalate things and, 
uh, you know, they can take to this de-escalation more and, and all this other stuff. I mean, it, it's a bigger picture and it's definitely a rabbit hole to go down, but it's it's something to think about. This, this is a reallocation of funds to create a new arm that is not taking away from what, what's already there. They, they can't take any more money away from the, the cops because the cops have all left. Like yeah. there's no, they've already gone. They've already. Split, I think this, so. this Amy Smith is onto something. And, and I'm very wary of this because as when I was listening to all this, I was hearing a lot of bud buzzwords, like we're going to do this in a culturally competent way. And we're going to have equity. Yeah, just smack her. All of those yeah, things yeah. bother me. I'm always like, those things always like make me. It's very up. Seattle. Yes. Yeah, very Seattle. Is. Well, it's it's very uh, big city, very woke. United States. It's, it's a bullshit woke <laughs> policy, Drew. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if, if what she said though was to me very important. She said, you know, do the police like it? I think if, yeah, you're, yeah. Asking the, if you're asking, the, is it really a problem if we are serving the citizens better? If our lower priority calls are being handled by someone who's not a sworn officer but has some training to deal with things like that? Um, you know, it. it it could be helpful, but ultimately I say, you know, as long as, as long as the police are happy with it, uh, when I was reading the briefings and things like this, uh, they talked to a lot of firefighters. They had a fire chief saying, you know, we're proud to be launching this initiative. They, the fire department already has uh, a mobile unit for mental health professionals. Uh, we had, a, I put up a picture of that, um, but, uh, you know, picture. high resolution photo, <laughs> but, uh, it seems to me like, um, they're, they're distancing themselves a little bit from the police. They're trying to say, we're not the police. We're separate from the police, uh, trying to encourage people who maybe uh, don't trust the police, uh, to do that. So are you, are you decreasing interactions between the city or are you just decreasing interactions between people who need to talk to a police officer? Again, I'm just spitballing because I don't or, I haven't seen or, this in action. Yeah, or is it people that that are used to making this a police problem? You, you, you That's you lots, of, lots of Karens out there who will do that, yeah. <laughs> uh, how about this? Like, l Let me run this through a couple numbers for you. Um, this is fiscal year 2017. Uh, the communication center that I ran, they, they, meaning the people that actually did all the work, uh, they had 1.4 million uh, phone calls received, both non-emergency and 911. 789,000 plus were diverted to other community resources and likely did not result in a call for service. Okay, so 70, so over half, you know, 789,000 is over half of 1.4 million. So that means about 633,000 phone calls resulted. Uh, that were handled by us. It's an average of about 52,000 calls per service per month. And uh, so 80 to 85% of those were, um, were were wireless calls. And by the way, th they were all done within Nina standards of, the, if they were 911 calls, 90% of your calls have to be answered within the first 10 seconds to be within a, a Nina compliance kind of thing. So th the calls coming into a comm center, no matter where you are, it, Seattle, uh, uh, Buffalo, uh, wherever, Tampa, people are used to taking in information very quickly and vetting that information pretty carefully. And I think with just a little bit of extra training and a little bit of extra time, they understand, you know, the fire department is all about response time. Anybody that does a study or an analysis of communications within a fire department, they are talking about how long does it take from the, the person to hit the last one on 911 to the time that the rubber starts turning on the fire truck? 
and there's a stopwatch that has gone off. And, and so they talk about the response time and how long does it take to get there? It's a little bit different in police world because we're already out and about. So it's very random. You could be in the right place at the right time. So uh, when you're talking response times, um, I, I think the, the, the capital that you're giving up in time to find out if this is a priority three or a priority four call is going to save you in response time because you don't have a crew out on some bullshit that they didn't need to be out on, whether it's the fire department, the police department, or this new silo of uh, mental health responders. And I, and I don't think it's just mental health. I think it, there's a lot more to it than that. That's my take. Well, me potato else? did ask um, if it's a, if it's funding the department or the city, I'm assuming this is a, a city budget yeah. item. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have covered mental health professionals on the podcast. I interviewed a mental health professional who is co-deployed. So she rides with an officer as opposed to coming separately to an incident. They come together. They arrive together. She said she would never go to one of these calls without police. So yeah, I, I get that. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that these are going to be the types of calls that they're going to be responding okay. to, though. Well, yeah, okay. Maybe that's a – they have um, another – that's a third prong of this idea. Yeah. I, okay. I, I genuinely think that. I, I don't – you know, I, I, because that is, by the way, just about every street cop's argument. Like, uh, that's just going to create yeah. more work for us because, <laughs> you know, here we go. Another social worker shows up and they're just Actually, the social worker, but – but in reality, like I've said before, and, you know, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that's we, we've been doing a form of this for a very long time. It's just that we weren't attaching it to public safety. You know, uh, it, the crisis, the mobile crisis team or crisis center goes to mentally disturbed person's homes all the time for follow up visits. The, you know, the elderly crimes against the elderly or the elderly care units show up at, at elderly homes and and checks on them and they do it without police intervention. You know what I mean? So we've been doing this in, 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 for, in social service for, for more than, you know, more than a few decades. It's just now um, they're kind of amping up a little bit or, or maybe uh, exposing themselves a little bit more to the danger. Okay. Drew, one thing, I, I don't know if you want to do this or not. I, I uh, kind of, uh, went ahead and did it without you. Carly was a dispatcher for a big agency and she's got tons of good questions in the chat. She's kind of like uh, managing everyone else's questions. I went ahead and send her a link. Do you care if she just joins the show here? Oh, please do. Carly, as, as a dispatcher who has been on the show before she uh, joined me for the breakdown we did in uh, Barron County, Wisconsin. She also did uh, the Louisville bank robbery episode. She's a former dispatcher with the California Highway Patrol. She's got lots of experience. It was her birthday on 10 4, so we could all wish her happy birthday. I wished her happy time. birthday on Facebook. Yes. It was uh, oh. Tyler's birthday as well. <laughs> I, um, I know that uh, we were talking about, uh, someone in the chats was talking about how we could have reserves go out. I don't know how it is there, Drew. Do you have a res do you have reserve deputies in your sheriff's department? Reserve programs are very useful to, to all departments and people. Uh, don't understand how useful that is. The problem is it's an all volunteer force. Mm. So uh, it's hard to get people, uh, you know, if, think of the liability, to, first of all, that you have to train somebody that's, you know, part-time certified and uh, they sometimes have to be under the supervision of a law enforcement officer. So the, the direct answer to the question is yes. We also have though, 
uh, we, we have citizens on patrol or something to that effect here where I used to work. And they were just like elderly volunteers or whatever that just didn't have a whole lot to do with their time and wanted to, to contribute and do stuff. And they would respond to, you know, look, there's a tree down in my yard. And, you know, they'd go there and assess it. Or if you needed traffic control in an accident scene, instead of tying up a deputy sheriff, they, they, they would respond and handle that if the situation wasn't too dangerous. But again, this is all dependent on the situation. So whether it's a reserve deputy or not, um, you know, but there is a form of that. And, 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 uh, you know, street cops, again, sometimes underestimate the, the, the importance of a division to handle, uh, you know, a community policing kind of division to handle volunteers from the community because they're force multipliers. So when, you know, so when we say, uh, here in Hillsborough County, we have 4,000 men and women that, that serve the, the people of Hillsborough County. Uh, maybe 3,200, 3,300 are employed by the sheriff full time. The rest are volunteer <laughs> or whatever. Like I, I, I'm, those are arbitrary numbers I'm making up, you know, it could be the full 4,000, but uh, the volunteer force in any law enforcement agency is very, very, very important, especially in an emergency. You, you don't realize too, like we have, uh, we're heavy into hurricane seasons. Uh, you know, th- there's a high potential for disaster. So we have a whole pocket full of uh, ham radio operators because they're going to k- keep our communications going <laughs> during the, the hurricane. We have uh, mounted units that ha- that work during parades. They're volunteers. They're not necessarily uh, cops. There's Beignet talking to us. Uh, see, proving my theory once again. Um, so here's Carly. Go ahead, John. Take it away. Uh, Carly, I had, a, I had a question for you. We were just talking about reservists responding to low priority calls and whether or not they would go by themselves. Uh, but uh, I just want to take away any of your initial thoughts on this. It seemed like you were handling yourself quite well in the chats. Uh, maybe you're a little bit more prepared to handle this than I am. So by all means, uh, your big city dispatch, uh, go ahead and show off. Which question do you want answered? Oh, just what, I mean, what do you think about Seattle's program in general, that they're going to assign low priority calls to these uh, non-sworn officers, that they're going to go out and respond to these things? Do you have a program that was similar like that in your your neck of the woods? I believe it was the Bay Area. Uh, Is that something that you supported? Is it something people liked? I've seen community police officers or community response officers who aren't sworn police officers. I've seen that in Minnesota and other places. So I'm just curious if you'd already seen something that was like that. Our department didn't do anything like that. Um, I don't know if they actually got like a separate citizen, but I know they stopped sending officers to certain calls in San Francisco. Like they wouldn't send them to any transient calls, which is wild to me because most of our transient calls, they had a machete or some sort of... <laughs> that, that's not a transient call. That's a weapons violation call in my mind. So that's a whole different thing. So that's... Uh, Stacy, uh, excuse me, uh, will say like, how do things work with call typing? And it's like, well, what kind of call is it? And it's like, that's very important where you say, is this a transient call or is this a weapons violation call? And so that's a great example of that, where you wouldn't send a police officer to one, but you would to the other. I, I think that's, that's probably one of Abby's concerns also though. But if, you know, if you're vetting that information and you're like, oh, you got a homeless guy downtown, well, throw a dart. You're going to hit a homeless guy downtown. Uh, you're not getting an officer out for that. We'll send somebody low priority when when they're available, uh, and then that guy just kind of loses his mind. You know what I mean? Like he's he's already uh, he already thinks he's Jimi Hendrix, and and now he's you know like now he is 
buck naked running through the streets with uh with, with the lid of a garbage can you know defending uh meteors um it's it's now a high priority but i guess you know somebody else is going to call at that point and that's going to get a higher priority i i i you know i i think that there's give and take there Drew, something else uh, that I've noticed, uh, you know, we've integrated 988 into a lot of things we're doing in terms of mental health. That's a na- that's a nationwide hotline. Uh, I ha- I know somebody who works at 988 and they have a certain procedure that they go through for assessing somebody's danger for mental health. And you guys have heard of this before. You know, do you have a plan? Have you been thinking about this for a long time? Do you have access to uh, lethal means? Um, are you willing to commit to a safety plan? Are you willing you know, to commit yourself voluntarily to to uh, either inpatient or outpatient care. There's different levels of things they do. And if they get people that are not cooperative or trying to use that system, you know, they're trying to exploit it for attention or whatever. The same the same thing that normally takes up the resource of a police officer. You know, they want a police officer to come over and pick them up, do the involuntary committal, take them over to the hospital. Um, You know, Abby mentioned earlier that we, you know, we can't do an IVC necessarily if we have mental health people doing this. But uh, my 988 friend said that, you know, one of the worst things that she didn't like is if someone's genuinely in a crisis and, and they're, they're not they're not exploiting or gaming the system. She felt bad about sending police officers over to their house because I guess there's a certain stigma associated with yeah. interacting with police. You know, you're having a bad day. Like, let's say, you know, you're, you're you lost your job. Uh, your, your wife left you. Everything's falling apart. And uh, you're thinking about eating your gun. And then, and then you know, then the police show up and everyone in the neighborhood is concerned about what's going on. Like, Abby, you mentioned earlier that there was a welfare check in your neighborhood, if I understood you correctly. Like, it draws attention and it adds a certain stigma there. So is that something where this health, mental health unit or this care unit could maybe uh, have less of a stigma associated with it? I mean, that's something else to think yeah. about, too. The, the untrained guy with a gun could be uh, the trigger. No, no pun intended. I mean, I, I, I always think back to this. Uh, I feel horrible about it, but there was a guy that worked in our crime prevention area, a uh, great deputy sheriff, and and he went back out to work on the street like he was moved back out to the street. First day back, uh, gets a mentally ill person call, walks up to the guy, uh, you know, the family calls and says he's in crisis, he's in crisis, and walks up to him on the driveway and the guy pulls a knife and just starts running at him. And, and he shot and killed him. And the family is just like, you know, this is not what we called you for. This is this is getting this is not what we called you for. But by the same token, you called, and and the person was in crisis, so they needed intervention. But did they need law enforcement intervention? Intervention. Y- y- you can make the argument, well, the guy had a knife, but you can also make the argument that the guy had a knife in charge at a law enforcement officer. It's not necessarily a, a foregone conclusion that he was going to charge at anybody who came near him because. There are people that are specifically trained in crisis intervention beyond what a law enforcement officer is trained. There are some, you know, obviously some great officers that have great crisis intervention training, but there are people that are that are trained to deal with that. And they've been dealing with people like that for years and years and years. So, um, you know, I think you can make an argument for both sides. What's what's next? Do you want to you want to play the rest? Oh, my goodness. Carly's got uh, a comment up. And she is also I think she already physically made, made, on the screen. I know so I'm she's very she's, confused by that. She's dual present. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll try to get rid of that. Some components of behavioral health. Um, 
sometimes it, you know the highly intoxicated might actually be a stem from uh, people experiencing some level of crisis. Uh, not always, but in some cases it can be. So uh, having that specialty and being able to identify and uh, work through the different resources is, is a component of that. Uh, we also have, at the department, uh, we also have our crisis response team that is made up of mental health professionals as well. So there will be a balance of collaboration that will also be working across uh, not only uh, the care department, but also the Seattle Police Department. Who would be the first point of contact if, uh, if they are responding to these calls? Would it be a police officer or would the behavioral health person take point? in those situations or would it kind of depend on the exact situation and if there is a potential for a sort of a dangerous situation to develop is that going to distract the officer by having to protect someone else in that situation so to simplify we have a really excellent co-response team right now in SPD and so we're really taking everything that they have learned they've been doing this kind of work really since 2012 in one form or another and we're just expanding it to say okay when might police be able to arrive we call it dual dispatch because they will arrive at the same time as our team of two um, we're actually rolling out new protocols that are more refined that use more sophisticated technology to be able to better predict when dual dispatch is appropriate, the officer can arrive but then can leave. And the reality is, when I go on ride-alongs with co-response teams, often, quickly, we see it's the MHP, the mental health professional, that needs to speak, sometimes for 45 minutes to connect someone to services appropriately and make sure things are okay, and that officer is stuck. They can't move on and are just rendered there while the radio is going and calls are needed. So this is um, originally, you know, the thought was just let's drive some efficiency here and make sure that people can get to more calls more effectively. A lot of this work is informed actually by Transform 911 research. You know, people starting to really evaluate call data, how many calls are coming in. And it appears that over the years, you know, police have gone to all the calls because that's who we had to send to all the calls, right? And so they've expanded, they've upskilled, they've worked relentlessly to try to uh, respond appropriately, but there's too many calls in every, every municipality. You cannot have enough police to get to all these calls. It's just too many. Um, so we start there and then look at the call data, and then there's just this basic question. Was police or fire required? Could somebody else get an equal response or sometimes even a better response. And that, th so there is a, a national movement right now. So I've learned a lot this year and I've learned priority four really doesn't mean what it, we thought it means. You know, I mean, the chiefs can, can tell you these are often, my understanding is like parking issues and noise complaints. So I think it, it's gotten rolled in because a, a concern about noise, that might be really appropriate, right, for this team. Generally, it's priority three. That's what we're talking about. These are low acuity. And again, we will be really rigorous the way we already are in dispatch to ensure that there is really no threat of violence. What's interesting, when you talk to mental health professionals, we're already out in this work all the time. We're doing street response. We have secondary response. And so it's already, that risk is already really well managed. And I hear sometimes the concern that social workers are gonna get shot, but it's, this is not happening because we're so thoughtful about that initial point of contact in 911. We have all these secondary response teams and they will become primary responders. This group can go out, they can be dispatched. But the so more, more municipalities are doing this than just Seattle, obviously. So, you know, the, she mentioned uh, Albuquerque and uh, Durham's doing it. There's another major municipality that's doing it. But um, so what she's saying is that, that whereas 
it used to be the cops showed up and they said, okay, we'll send the mental health team or the, the secondary response team. Now that secondary response team becomes a primary response team to, to be the force multiplier for these little parking disputes or nonviolent, you know, hey, turn your music down. And it sounds to me like they are taking a lot of money and dumping that into the training of the vetting of those calls. Because uh, just like she said, it, it, it's a breath of fresh air to know that, you know, I, I wish somebody would have um, been able to say, you know, way back when half of our, you know, 1.4 million calls went somewhere else. Like we didn't even, they don't need police intervention. Sometimes it is a barking dog. Sometimes it's a, a problem with the post office. Sometimes it's this or sometimes it's that. So cops get a little uneasy when you, when you talk about taking money from their budget to put somewhere else, but this isn't that one and two, there isn't enough cops to pay the full budget anymore. So even if they kept the full budget and this mayor is actually increasing the law enforcement budget, you're still getting all the equipment that you normally have. You're, you're still getting bonuses or um, they're, they're at least trying to new programs to recruit officers with bonus money and, and such. You're not, you're not going to miss anything. If anything, you're going to get a little relief of having to respond, respond to certain types of calls and being freed up to help each other or be a little bit more proactive in some cases. Uh, I don't know about proactivity in Seattle. I don't, I don't think that's a reality, but <laughs> Drew, when when I when I first heard of this today, like I was very resistant to change, uh, as you know how it kind of goes in government and how it kind of goes just in our line of work that uh, we we don't we don't really like innovation, we don't really like what you might call progressive policies, and like I said, there's a lot about this that makes me worrisome, particularly in the buzzwords that they use to, to, to kind of sell this. But they, I'll, I'll go around the room, and I'll just start with myself. It kind of sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, Abby, you go first. As our, as our resident wackadoo liberal, <laughs> you go ahead and, and just say what you're what you're thinking. Well, you know, Drews, you guys have brought me around on it. I was kind of not for it, and I think it's not a dangerous call until it is a dangerous call. I mean, sure, you, you go to a noise party. You know, but I guess what I'll say is I'm glad at least the rhetoric, the narrative I'm hearing is to help law enforcement, not to punish law enforcement. We are not, right. you know, so for in the in the three years since the riots, we at least are hearing that kind of commentary from our city leaders because it's been it's been none of that so if it's under the headline of helping police and you know okay let's give it a try i have my doubts but now drew i know that you were a hard charger and all you cared about was the really <laughs> really important laws and you didn't want to go to noise complaints and barking dogs no. if you were hearing that uh, a community response that. officer or someone from the care department was going to this and you could take care of like the actual crimes that were condemning your city to darkness as a patrolman or patrol deputy would that would you be glad to have this certainly more time for me to sit uh, under an overpass and ignore carly <laughs> Uh, you know, like when she's trying to send me to accidents and stuff. So, uh, no, in seriousness, I mean, like I get, I get the concerns and I understand all of that, but th th there's innovations. Uh, you gotta, sometimes you gotta break eggs to make mayonnaise. Uh, and, and on top of that, it's, it's data driven 
And, and I know nobody likes to hear that, that people are just numbers or whatever, but you've got to follow the data. You've got to follow, um, you know, if this is going to result in an, in a decrease of crimes because it has, you know, resulted in officers being freed up to, to respond to more, um, violent calls and intervene quicker or whatever. Um, I, I think John, you made an important point as long as the cops are on board. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'll, you know, I'm willing to wager. I'm willing to roll the dice. Uh, maybe outwardly and publicly, they may be on board, but uh, I, I don't, I, and I don't know what they what they really feel. But I can tell you this also, Abby and and Carly. I want to get your opinion on this. I just jumped in here. Um, at the end of the press conference, I, I don't have it. I cut it out of there. In fact, we're done, we're pretty much done with that press conference. But um, there was a nine one one dispatcher trainee in the room who raised her hand and asked the question, the mayor, and she's like talking about the, the office of police accountability and how he can stand there in good conscience and say that he's holding the police accountable because it has taken X amount of months to do the investigation of the officer that, as she put it, ran over that civilian and um, that he's not fired so how, how can you restore confidence in, in the police? Now, he had to respond to it as the mayor who's going to ultimately pay out. So he, and he's an attorney. And, and I, I got to tell you, I, I know I, I realize he's a Democrat and I don't want to break anybody's heart, but I kind of like this mayor. Uh, I, I don't live there and I don't see all of his policies. Uh, but on this issue, I, I think he's well-spoken and in, at least he's, his heart's in the right place. Uh, but he just essentially said, look, <laughs> I understand that I have to restore trust in the police department and I have to restore trust with the public, but I'm a big fan of due process. And you, you can't just point your finger and say, this guy ran somebody over and we're going to fire him. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, and, and just, you know, side note, this is me speaking, not the mayor's tone. Um, if anybody, uh, if somebody driving a Pepsi truck ran that lady over, uh, I mean, it would just be a civil lawsuit between Pepsi and, and the driver probably more than likely wouldn't be fired. I mean, maybe if there's a negligence issue, but there's also due process there and that's what civil courts are for. But all of a sudden, because it's a police officer, he needs to be fired and they're not being held accountable. And that's somebody in the, their own department. That's that's a nine one one dispatcher trainee that's asking the mayor that and saying those words about she won't be uh, there long. <laughs> uh, she, well, uh, you you do wonder, like, what are you there for? Are you there to be the chicken hawk? Are you there to to watch to, to be the watchdog? Or are you there to to do your job like Carly did and and John does? Uh, you know, diligently protect the officers, not, not cover for the officers, but di diligently protect for the safety of the officers and the citizens. Uh, Carly, do you have any last thoughts on this? Yeah. Big city. What do you think about having to decide who responds to this cops fire or the care department? <laughs> it works. It works. But I, I mean, I want to be positive about it, but I still see so many flaws like, it sounds good on paper, but we don't really know how it looks in practice. And also, are they going to be on night shift? Because night shift is always forgotten. I don't think so. Yeah, I, I didn't get the impression that it was a night shift thing. Oh. And, and when, when things go wrong? 
I, in fact, I think there was a point in the, uh, <laughs> I think there was a point in the press conference where they said that they were probably headed towards a 24 hour operation or one of the Albuquerque or Durham has, uh, has just established their 24 hour operation. So I think that that will make a huge difference because people do act differently at night. There's more, more drunk people at night. Yeah, I just feel like they're more susceptible to it at night. Like we had more suicide calls between commute after dinner and midnight than we did at any time in the morning. There was too much traffic to respond to it in the morning. But all of a sudden traffic lightens up and people decide I'm going to jump off an overpass now and just hope that there's a size car below me. And so if anything, I think they should implement it at night first and then maybe the healthcare worker will also be like, oh, so maybe we do need to be on call and maybe we do need to care about the night shift officers, no pun intended with the care unit. But like we always focus so much on day shift and the night shift's always forgotten. And I might be biased because I work night shift far too long. Yeah, We never had any assistance. And so now you're still putting it on the officers, but you're saying we're going to hold them accountable but we're not going to give them the same assistance. Well, not necessarily. I mean, they're always going to be held accountable, right? Yeah. They, they, they're, they're always going to have a job to do. The officers are. So it's just a matter of whether you have that resource available to you or not. I, I just don't think that they're ready. They're ready to deploy the program in October. I don't think they're ready to deploy it 24 hours in October, but um, I, I do see your point though. I mean, uh, things are different at night and, and, you know, like just odd things that a dispatcher would pick up on. Like you, you can tell on a Sunday, I don't know if either of you have experienced this trend or not, but you could tell on a Sunday when halftime hits <laughs> because the yeah. 911 calls go through the roof and the domestics go through the roof. I mean, that's just a reality or, or a full moon. Like, you know, people don't think that that's scientific or whatever, but you, you most definitely get, odd calls for service on a, on a, on a, uh, on a full moon, you know, especially on a full moon Friday night. So, and everything does calm down when it's raining outside of my experience. Deadleg yeah. has a good point. He says, is care fully staffed now? And the same question, Seattle police. I think we know Seattle PD is down Abby. They said, he says, this is great on paper, but will people want to come do a job that no one wants to do? I, I mean, it's nice to have a pilot program and to have all these wonderful smiling people in place. Like uh, Amy Smith here saying, I've learned so much. We're going to do great things. But what happens when the rubber reads the road and people start quitting the care team and you can't hire people to go on the care team? I know a lot of mental health professionals when, when 2020 happened and said, we need to be sending you know uh, mental health professionals out to these calls. The mental health professionals, who I know at least, and I know that's anecdotal, right? But they said to me, like, did anyone ask us if we wanted to go? I don't want to go to that. I think they know that when they have a patient who's a danger to themselves or others, who do they call? They call the police. Yeah, exactly. And, and so what happens down the road after the after the, the shininess and the newness comes off of this program and, uh, you know, the care program meets some sort of scandal or they don't have the employees that they need? They may they may just be another uh, part of the city budget that doesn't that doesn't work perfectly because government never does and anything looks good on paper the police department looks great on paper the fire department looks great on paper I know the truth of the fire department by the way uh, but but you know just in reality things things tend to break down so this is a nice optimistic uh, press conference but I think that leg <laughs> might be on to something here that uh, well, maybe yeah. won't work so well. It, perhaps, but I mean, you, you know, he, he talked about the increase in the budget that he's going to ask for, which is going to increase the, you know, 13 positions. He's, he's projecting to be fully staffed 
in his communication center by the end of the year. Um, That's a good sign. Nobody in the United States of America is fully staffed in their communication center. In fact, they're 80% understaffed or some, to, some ridiculous amount or, or 80% are understaffed. So, uh, um, so I, yes, I, I do understand the pessimism, but um to say that the officers aren't fully staffed so the program won't work is not is misleading because you don't you haven't seen the data yet of yeah of not needing as many police officers because of the secondary response yeah. unit which is now a primary response unit so plus you can't um, just say well this isn't going to work and you throw your your <laughs> towel in and just say let's keep doing policing the same way that it's always been particularly yeah. when the public who pays the taxes wants it to be done different you can say whatever you want about police tax uh, taxation and police tactics uh, but uh, the people get the government they want. We live in a republic, and if they want it done differently in Seattle, thanks to federalism, which I love, they can have it differently there, and I can have it the way that I want it here because I right. vote. So if they want it differently, they can have it differently. And it's and uh, you can't just say it won't work and never try it. You 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 do Seattle. I'll do Tampa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any final thoughts, uh, Carly or or Abby? I think that uh, I'm seeing in the chats, uh, Christy, I think you're right. You know, another field that will be under supported and probably, un, you know, in the long run. So I don't know. I don't see myself as a pessimist, but um, I, uh, there's a lot to be seen. There's a lot to prove. Yeah. I, I, I think that, um, I, I think that she, the doctor, uh, she is a PhD, by the way, uh, but she came from uh, nonprofits. But I, I do, and, and John makes a good point that that probably means she's uh, well versed in grant writing. So you know they're probably going to get more funds funding from that. But uh, that's my that's John's guess. That's my guess. Um, but she's uh, she's seen the data, you know, and sometimes you got to trust the data. Um, and, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Like, I, I don't think that, you know, uh, a dishonest person is going to skew the data to make it look like it's working. Uh, sometimes that's where politicians come in, to be honest. Um, but she also oversold it just in, in a sense of, or, or jinxed it, should I say, by saying, yeah, nobody's been shot yet. Like mm -hmm. call, calling it the care department is also a terrible idea because as soon as they under respond or they uh, they miss <laughs> nobody respond, cares the the headline will read care department doesn't care you know <laughs> I I think that they they should have called it something else but uh, since we did mention this as a republic uh, and Abby you you live there or in the area I don't know if you're a Seattle city proper but if this had been an issue on the ballot would you have voted yes for it I mean you don't have to say but I guess that's to me that's the ultimate test is looking at that press conference and they said this is the issue we want to put on the ballot for the voters and it was strictly an issue for the for the public to vote on which way would you go hmm. I think I you know I would want to talk to law enforcement and know if they want it okay that's a fair answer, Drew. It, it is a fair answer. And I, I, I just think that it's a very large scale risk to not have dumped a bunch of um, research into it. So if it's working elsewhere in, in your, your um, um, what am I trying to say? The, the, the sample, the pool is, is similar <laughs> in size and you know, your demographics are somewhat similar. 
um, and it's working elsewhere, I, uh-uh. I think I think it would be too much of a gamble to just experiment with something like this. I'm always uh, against you, no matter what side you take. In case, case in point, case in point, Drew. Uh, so you're talking about federal grants here. We mentioned the money. We talked about how money's being relocated. Uh, government and power and money all kind of go go hand in hand. I, you're, you could find an expert to say anything. We have experts out there who, are, who will talk about climate change and anything else, or, or experts that also say that police is a serious problem in this country. Police are seriously over-policing people of minorities, and those experts are getting grants from the federal government, and they're getting paid, and it's against their interest to ever say that the pro- program that they espouse is not necessary. So just, just to pay, play constant devil's advocate so that you can never enjoy anything, be a dick, as I have said multiple times. I'm just saying that there's there might be people with skin in this game, like this yeah. Amy Smith. What was her job before? Now she has a job doing this, and uh, of course, you know, of course, she, she has research to back her up. That's why the most important uh, the most important person is the one keeping the numbers. You're right, because, and, and because I want to give you have the most integrity. I want to I want to give you this last point, and then I won't say anything. Except I will go on for 20 more minutes. No, I'm just kidding. I'm done. Uh, do we have any voicemails, John? We do. Would you like me to play them? Oh, I would love it if you played them. Why don't I go ahead and toggle over to my thing? And We have four voicemails today, uh, so I'm very pleased by that. Thank you, Wolfpack. What's up, Wolfpack? It's Bosco. You know, daily. Um, uh, just a weekly check-in. What I said a couple weeks ago was it would be kind of cool to do an old-school-style detective episode or two because Drew has the experience in that. I think it'd be pretty pretty fascinating. It's a buddy of mine, Team Queen, a local automotive hot rod enthusiast, um, good buddy of mine, and uh, passed away. Everybody, y'all take care of yourselves, man. Y'all take care of yourselves. Take care of your bodies. And thank y'all for showing me love yesterday. Bosco out. Oh! <laughs> So sorry for your loss, Bosco. I'm glad that you have uh, friends in the Wolfpack that can give you some support. Although I have to say that Drew and I have done two old-timey detective episodes. Yes. This, this seems two. like a deja vu to me. But we've, yes. done, we've done two of them. And we've we, talked we're, about this. We're going to do more. We're going to do more detective. What What is it that you have in mind? Like, does he have to, like, use an accent? Or does he need to literally smoke a pipe? Like, right. we've done the detective. <laughs> do I need a fedora? Do, what, I see. I worry that you and I can't have fedoras because hipsters wore fedoras and made Ooh. them into kind of a stupid thing. Carly, do you think I could pull off a fedora? I think if you think you can, you can. Okay, <laughs> that, that's I used to wear one. <laughs> a- Abby, do you think I could pull off a fedora? Or more yes. importantly, what about like a sombrero? Uh, oh, I yeah. like the fedora. You like that uh, cowboy hat. Mm. Oh man, the room hates the cowboy hat. <laughs> I, I, I think Drew could do the cowboy hat. He oh, had no, to I, when he was a deputy. He had yeah, to I, did, I hated that. Thing. Oh wow, I am not a cowboy. I have all a right. cowboy hat. All right, uh, maybe we could just have hat night, and we can all do <laughs> hats. What's uh, the next? Uh... Uh, I'll keep it moving. Here we go. Hey, Tom Center. This is Micah. I'm not doing the perimeter check. Just calling to leave a message and check in. Uh, I actually have a question for Drew this week. Um, do you know the real reason why the military insists on uniform? I do not, Micah. I'm talking to a recording. Yeah. 
the answer is to uh, minimize casualties. <laughs> okay, guys, I'll catch you on Com Center. I'll be in the chats if I can. Uh, if not, I might be off grid this weekend, but guns up, giddy up. Awesome. When did this show become about dad jokes? <laughs> recently. I'll keep That's, moving, Drew. Thank you. I know you want to go home. <laughs> hey, John and Drew, this is Jim from Florida. He's calling in to give an opinion on the dispatcher taking the call on the down pilot. I thought under the circumstances, she did a great job only because they didn't really help her by their explanation as to what was going on. And granted, it's not a call that any dispatcher or telecommunicator gets any day. So I don't think they did her any justice. And, you know, granted, the pilot might have been in shock. The homeowner might have been befuddled himself. But uh, I thought she did fine under the circumstances. And I think she needs to be given props. Carly, I want you to respond to that because you were driven insane by the 911 dispatcher who took the call for the downed F-35 and the pilot. Did you want to respond to Jim from Florida? Um, I appreciate that he left the voicemail, but I think he's 110% wrong. That's way more. That's more than is technically possible. I think she did. I, I Thinking about it again, I think they just needed to explain the situation twice through in a row. Just say, like, I'm a pilot. I jumped out of a plane. The plane is gone. My back hurts. Can I have an ambulance? I, I, I still again, I jumped out of a plane. Yeah, I, I still maintain. And, and by the way, Jim from Florida sounded like he was in an F-35 as he was given that phone call. But um I still maintain that pilot went through a checklist to get that plane to take off. And that's all that dispatcher was doing. I, I mean, everyone thinks that it was a, a paralysis by analysis and all this other stuff. Yeah. I mean, they're non-standard questions when somebody fell 2000 feet from the sky and, and she in quote, wrote a parachute down. I, I, I get it, but she's been ingrained as just like these shithead administrators will do. You better ask every single question. You better have every single answer done because the attorneys are going to be up our ass. You know, like, what do you want her to do? Uh, oh, hey, okay, thanks. Thanks, pilot daddy. We're just going to send you an ambulance. I don't want to ask any more questions now. Yeah. She went through the checklist. She, she just went through the checklist. I, I think that she was taken aback uh, because, I, you know, that's probably her first F-35 pilot uh, that landed in a cornfield. But um, that's just my opinion. I, I, I you know. Re I, I get what Carly, I, I do get what Carly's saying, but reviewing it uh, and just thinking back on it, it takes me about a week to actually form a real good opinion. But she seemed like maybe who got stung on a quality assurance check before, right? And, uh, that's why. You're, oh uh, my God, you're speaking in my good ear, John. Yeah. We need to talk about quality assurance checks one day because yeah. uh, I had a meltdown over that one day. Let's right. uh, let's melt down next week. That way we don't have to think about it for a whole week. What we're gonna do? I'm gonna go back to Jim from Florida. To comment on the uh, mentor relationship, I think uh, it's got to be honest that we need to move Drew out of the stable into the pasture where broken down old deputies go, bring in some, uh, you know, relationship with John. Anyway, John, part of any mentor relationship is to have open, crucial conversations, and I think you need to refrain from masking your identity and calling into your own show. Uh, you know, that's something that we can work on. Anyway, 
Thank you, Jim. Uh, I, I know, I, first of all, I'm glad you're my mentor, but I know that experience comes from, this sounds so salty and sarcastic, from all the years that you hosted your own college show. I know that you have. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Jim. Thank you for taking I think, uh, first of all, Jim from Florida has moved from the F-35 to a, a, a standard. He's. I think he's driving a Honda Civic now. Uh, because I could hear the gear shifting one and, uh, two, he, he called me out on something a couple of weeks ago about how John was like, no, I, I don't think this is mental health at all. I think it's just evil. And I, I'm saying yes, but, but evil is a product of bad mental health. Like I'm not saying, I'm not giving anybody the leeway there or the excuse to say, you know, it's a mental health issue because you, you know, you killed your kids or you beat your kids or whatever. Yeah, she's pure evil, but that's not born out of being pure evil. I think that's born out of having some issue with your brain of, uh, of yeah. some sort. You know, so I, it's just it's like saying, uh, well, I mean, he's not an athlete. He's a he's a professional baseball player. Yeah, well, uh, professional baseball players are athletes as well. I mean, you know, it's kind of an, an over not, overarching not, concept. They're not mutually exclusive to sum you up Thank and you. to not show you, if I may. The problem is, is with the response to Jody Hildebrandt is this is like, OK, so it's not mutually exclusive. Maybe she's both, but we can only determine her fate based on one thing. And the simple fact is, is we're not going to uh, no. severely punish or execute someone who is mentally ill. But we absolutely no, 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 no. Put, a, put a bad dog down. Not true. And, uh, so we killed Ted Bundy. We killed Jeffrey Dahmer. You don't think that they had mental illness like well, you think that uh, this was normal behavior or. Well, we, I'm just, I don't want, I don't want to compare it case by case because I could always have an, a counterpoint to you. But, but my point is when we, when, when we respond to Jody, hold on. Yes. I'm very pro Dahmer. Very Ted Kaczynski. If you watch the Tuesday show, you would see that I'm not pro anyone. Don't, don't gaslight me. Don't straw man me. I'm saying when we respond to Jody Hildebrand, we got to decide what she is. So is she mentally ill? Which means we're going to respond. We're going to punish no, her. No, you don't. You, you don't have to make her one thing. No, 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 no. But but we we can only punish but, her one way. She's either going to get life or death, right? She can't have both. This isn't Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> so like you know, if you're going to give her one or the other, you have to decide what she I, is. I'm with Thomas uh, in the chats. I cannot wait to read your manifesto. That's that's uh, all it's I look It's available forward. on my blog. All right, let's move it along. Like we're like we're so long now. We're stretching it to two episodes. I'm going to yeah, finish it up. I'm going to finish it up, and then you and I can fight afterwards as we always do. Here okay. We go. Last love the show, guys. Keep up the good work. Bye, Jim. We love you. Bye. Love you, Jim. Last voicemail. Here we go. What's up, Wolfpack? It's Bosco. Oh, you know. That's Bosco again. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, another one from uh, Liz. I guess I omitted to uh, add that on there. Liz, I will oh, play your shoot. voicemail next week, which is really too bad because I was going to go out on a funny high note. And now we're going out on a terrible note where everyone's convinced that Drew and I are getting a divorce for a whole week. <laughs> I'm arguing with everybody on the show. This has been this is new, Drew. Like we're in this. We're the the uh, once the winter solstice hits or whatever it's called. I mean, this is where I turn into argumentative, Drew. Like I'm just going to argue with with all of you. So even if it's uh you know uh, a uh, like hey you just won the lottery, I'm going to be like yeah, but <laughs> taxes. You know what I mean? So. So it's futile. <laughs> I, I'm I'm just going to be angry with all of you. Can I just out shout you? That's how you win an argument these days. It's just <laughs> you should just shut me down and then 
cancel me. Call me a racist. Jason. And then just say just say ridiculous things that don't apply. I mean, you know, that's, that's how we're going to do it. Uh, Abby, any any last thoughts? Thanks for being our, our local wackadoo on the scene there in Seattle. <laughs> Tell us what's it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. You don't have to ignore Thanks. me for six months or anything. Like that. Always come on anytime. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Guys, check out her podcast on being a police officer wherever you find podcasts. It's a wonderful podcast. I don't just say that because like me and Drew have both been on there. It's uh, it's wonderful. <laughs> She's very thoughtful. Uh, adds a lot to uh, the dialogue conversations like tonight. If you want it with like yet less yelling and more sense having, like listen to on being a police officer. It's always amazing. And Thank if, you. If, if you live in the Bay Area in the past and you're dialing 911, you may talk to Carly. So uh, thank you, Carly, for joining us. Beignet, always a pleasure. Uh, right on cue there. <laughs> Hi, Beignet. So uh, cute. You, your face will be on a shirt soon. Uh, Drew, I'll, I'll hand it over to you to take us out on the show. Yeah, John, stick around. Uh, the, it, it, Carly, I want you to look uh, to Google. There, there is a football player that mispronounces beignets. It's going to be good for beignets' uh, Instagram account. <laughs> I've and, seen that. And, I love it. And, th- <laughs> and it's got beignet in the title. So, uh, and Abby, thank you very uh, uh, once again for uh, for the refreshing IQ. That's uh, that's what we love about Abby. She's just uh, thank you. a great conversationalist. So. Uh, from all of us, there's five shows, and you can uh, look up on the internet when they are. Uh, it, listen, though, I, in seriousness, there's a Ken Shamrock uh, event coming up in Jacksonville, Florida, at the University of North Florida. It's at the end of October. Go to the Failure to Stop Instagram page to start getting the information about that. Ken Shamrock did an interview with Eric the other day. Phenomenal, great role player, uh, great role model, not role player. That's something different. Uh, Jonathan is a role player. He's LARPs. Uh, and Ken Shamrock is a great role model and a huge fan of first responders and very supportive and just a good human being. It's It was shocking to me. If you don't know who Ken, Sh- Ken Shamrock is, it, he was a WWE wrestler, WWF back in the day, WCW. Uh, he also was one of the original from uh, U, U, uh, U, U Ultimate Fighting Championships. Uh, he's a UFC Hall of Famer. Uh, but just an all-around good guy. I mean, just, ha- you know, came from kind of a, a broken upbringing, but uh, revived it and uh, good family man and and whatever. It was a great interview Eric did, so please uh, give it some attention and uh, consider coming to Jacksonville for uh, for the Bare Knuckles, Valor Bare Knuckle fight that uh, he promotes. So from uh, my friend uh, John, who's sitting there, and Beignet and Carly and Abby Ellsworth, thank you for joining us. John, do yourself a favor and stick around. Gun 